This episode of the Keen on Yoga podcast is sponsored by Moments. It's a booking system we've been using for the last year, roughly speaking, and we really recommend it. It's a one-stop shop, really, and it integrates with Zoom and allows you to take payments via PayPal and Stripe. You can set up courses, trainings, retreats, keep an eye on your business with robust reporting. It even runs a staff payroll. So if you do run a studio, it will take care of teacher payments as well. Excellent team at Moments will help you set up, migrate from your other system and offer onboarding support. They're really hands-on at this. Once you've set up and are going, you will have time-saving automations, marketing and win-back campaigns to keep those students coming back. Moments literally takes care of the whole business side for you, so you're really free to take care of your creative side. Best of all, you've got that real-time support via phone, live chat and email. Moments is offering Keenan Yoga listeners and viewers a two-month free trial. Click on the link below or visit moments.com, that's moments.com, and book a demo. If you quote Keen on Yoga to get your free trial, you'll get two months free. Now on to the episode. So uh, welcome Daniel Simpson to, uh, to Keen on Yoga once again. Um, thanks for coming on. It's wonderful to see you once again. Um, yeah. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah. Adam. It's a pleasure to uh, be it's here. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, so Daniel's got a course up, uh, The Roots of Modern Yoga, uh, the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. I highly recommend it, having read Daniel's book and recommending it to all my uh, the, the students and, and trainees. Um, it's a super good book called The Truth of Yoga. Um, and if it's anything like this book, then I really would recommend that you uh, check this new course out because the roots of modern yoga are very interesting because what we find pre-20th century is really a very different beast, as it were, to uh, what we're seeing today in the modern yoga centers and what we're actually doing and what we think of we're doing ourselves. Uh, as you might know from uh, from your own studies or from listening to me interview people like James Mallinson and the like, uh, yoga modern yoga scholars, we see pre-20th century and um, going back to the classical roots of yoga, something very different involved, involving kind of penances and asceticism, uh, latterly uh, yoga use in kind of a very esoteric tantric manner in terms of raising kundalini through the body, which maybe we're doing a little bit more of that, but we're certainly... Um, probably not using yoga as a form of penance anymore and uh we're probably not expecting a kundalini i don't know yeah, I well maybe that's actually, 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 yeah, uh, that's actually very <laughs> true Daniel. very very true well maybe yes yeah, so I'll, I'll modify that we actually probably are using yoga quite often to beat ourselves up but maybe we shouldn't be anyways so without further ado mm. there's, this, there's this bridge between let's say the uh, yoga pre-20th century and around them obviously the, the obvious date is probably Swami Vivekananda 1896 or whatever it was that he comes over and speaks to the Chicago um, World Convention on Religions and uh, around this time big things shift anyway and in terms of the way that we're introduced to yoga because pre prior to that we don't really have that much connection I think in the in the west to uh, the ancient tradition of yoga as it was and there's certain kind of bridges that, that kind of moderate our experience and I think probably set the tone subsequently, set the modern tone to yoga. So um, without further ado, would you perhaps, Daniel, um, just give a basic overview as to important dates and, and what we see happening and, and from, when it, <laughs> from when it started? And I'll jump in there if I have anything to say. Well, yeah, all, the, all these things are very difficult to pin down. Mm. Um, you know, specifically in terms of what we think of as, as modern yoga practice, um, mm. we're often thinking of groups of people coming together on mats to go through a sequence of postures. Mm. And the earliest available evidence of people doing that, um, that, that, that certainly that I know mm. of, is in uh, India, outside Bombay, mm. in 1918 on Christmas Day, the Sova Beach with uh, Yogendra. Yogendra yeah. Um, so yeah, the first modern yoga class, effectively, um, is barely more than 100 years old. Um, yeah. Winding back a bit, as you say, Vivekananda coming to Chicago in 1893, that's a you know, particular pivot point as well in that uh, sort of introduces the idea of yoga in a, in a new and very accessible way to lots of people as he hung around for a few years and ended up writing his book in 1896, Raja Yoga, um, which I think gives the sort of... Um, <laughs> 
blueprint really for the way that a lot of modern teachers engage with philosophy mm. Um, mm. it's uh, you know basically to remix um, traditional texts to say what we would like them to say to support our own ideas so Vivekananda was promoting Advaita Vedanta through the prism of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras to his western students mm. but he'd also absorbed from these western students lots of interesting ideas um, particularly around uh, you know this sort of occult um, roots of what we would now call new age thinking mm. so things that might be uh, classified more technically as new thought mesmerism mm. um, and uh, yeah, other funky ideas that could also be mapped onto ancient Indian ideas about prana being the sort of substrate out of which all life emerges and mm. so on and so forth uh, so we perhaps have to rewind a bit further to, to you know, the foundation of the Theosophical Society in New York and soon afterwards moving, relocating to India and this east-west exchange mm -hmm. which you start to see is already going backwards and forwards long before we get to you know, people in the late 20th century um, involved in you know, mass industrial yoga. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I think uh, even before that, uh, the, the first Westerner who claimed he was a yogi, um, or at least <sighs> put it down in writing, was Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. That's uh, sometimes, if I remember rightly, the mid yeah. mid nineteenth century. <laughs> And uh, he was only doing that, really, because he'd heard about ideas related to yoga from the Bhagavad Gita that was translated in 1785 and uh, spread quite quickly to the West and was a source of fascination, mm. partly because it seemed to mirror, to a certain extent, ideas about Christianity mm. and uh, mm. you know, salvation through the personal God. Mm. Um, but uh, also, you know, there was there was an otherness to it. And it was uh, it was it was clearly speaking about something experiential that uh, you know, chimed with uh, early 19th century transcendental in the West and yes. uh, that, that was really how Thoreau got interested in it and Emerson I think was the, the, the first to promote it in the US so lots of lots of crossovers basically when Vivekananda first comes actually the, obviously the date I got wrong in the 1893 he comes across to, the, to speak at the uh, Lord Parliament is he did he change his tune originally when he came across obviously he was saying that his guru was Ramakrishna um, and that he'd already had some influence on him at that point right what we call um neo uh neo hinduism right he'd, he'd already kind of changed and uh, the classical teachings even before he became influenced by uh, modern um, transcendentalism or mesmerism and you know various various other things that influences in the west right I mean, he, he has, I guess, a, a range of influences on him. Mm. You know, he grew up in Calcutta, which at that time was the capital of you know, colonial British India. Um, he was exposed to education in the English language and therefore to a lot of Western thinking. Um, and at the same time, you know, he did have this relationship with Ramakrishna. Um, but Ramakrishna was a, a devotee of Kali, mm. and, uh, you know, pretty out there. And uh, those aren't really the sort of uh, ideas that Vivekananda emphasizes, as you point out. I mean, he's, he's, he's very much influenced by a reform movement that grows up in 19th century Bengal, really in response to colonial occupation. Mm -hmm. And this is you know, the sort of big <laughs> spectre hanging over the, the, the transition of yoga into a more sort of uh, mainstream practice, more accessible mm. to ordinary people who live in the world, um, is that fact of uh, the colonial occupation of India mm -hmm. um, and you know in response to condescension from British officials to the banning of you know wandering itinerant yogis um, to uh, ideas that uh, physical yoga was was some sort of uh, you know cross between begging <laughs> charlatanry and uh, something you know, like devil worship mm -hmm. uh, you know, Vivekananda and others um, were, I guess, trying to present Hinduism as really the apex of uh, you know, rational thought yeah. as well as yeah. uh, you know, mystical insight and therefore compatible also even with science. So, you know, this yeah. could be, this, this was what the Westerners were looking for effectively, a direct experience. And religion all over the world eventually gets privatized in a way, turned into a, an experiential process, because that's the only way it can withstand the gaze of science, mm -hmm. <laughs> which obviously wants to measure everything and says, well, where's this, 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 this bearded chap in the clouds you're all talking about? Um, so I think uh, he, he uh, really built a bridge between the Western world of people who were interested in doing that and the Eastern world interested in doing that. And yoga became uh, part of that discourse. Uh, and obviously yoga is primarily interested in direct experience. Mm, so it's mm. uh, you know, really at the apex then of um, what the trendiest people thinking about, you know, the, uh, the, the, the most sort of esoteric and at the same time most important questions are all interested in. So he, you know, he, he really sort of shows how this Eastern kind of, uh, you know, um, 
almost um, underground philosophy could be as mainstream as you like. Mm. And I think I think from that point onwards, the building blocks are there for when physical practices come to the West being more popular. Um, Western teachers to pick this up and run with it and, and translate these ideas in their own way to sound, you know, as relevant as they could possibly be to 60s counterculture to, I don't know, yeah, sort of 1990s yoga boom philosophy, feel good in the body type stuff. Um, and uh, all the time feeling like we're still, you know, in, 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 in sync with the original tradition, mm. even mm. though all of those ideas are an enormous evolution, even from the point that Vivekananda was at in the late 19th century. Yeah, I mean, I'm often kind of intrigued as to who who kind of innovated the most, and I, I think certainly Vivekananda is up there as as a huge uh, kind of leapfrog to, uh, between um, older ideas and and newer um, iterations of of what we're doing now, and particularly this idea that you mentioned previously of, of the the discrepancy between the teachings we find in Patanjali of a uh, Sankhya Yoga, which is a dualistic philosophy, um, and you know, saying that there's a god and a person, and really, then never the two can meet, and right, and you know, like you probably won't, and even like you know, if we, if we read, well, we don't know Patanjali exactly. Uh, anyway, this is another conversation, but whether he believed in a liberation <laughs> in the world or not, you know, generally speaking, liberation wasn't happening in the world. That came kind of later in Indian philosophy, and then with Vivekananda, we find. Advaita Vedanta, yeah, everything is now. You are already there. Um, there's no, there's no, there, there's no uh, barrier between you and the divine experience. And obviously, this is a much more positive and uh, and kind of feel good uh, kind of uh, thing that we'd like to hear, right? But uh, where where did this come yes, from? So and, and, um, talks about this. this, this. This phrase self-realization is really mm. something that he popularizes um, and it comes really from the enormous uh, yeah, capacity of the Hindu religion, um, although you know, Hinduism is only a relatively recent label that's been attached to these traditions that just just incredibly capable of absorbing additional influences, even things that are you know, directly opposed to the uh, yeah, original uh, found, founding core of that religion. Often, you know, yoga really emerged as a challenge to the, the ideas of the Vedic ritual, and yet within a few centuries, yoga teachings and the teachings of Brahmin priests uh, easily combined back together again. Um, and so, so I think with Vivekananda and this Neo-Vedanta strain in 19th century India, there's this uh, attempt really to you know, sort of always collapse everything back into the um, all-encompassing oneness mm. that can contain everything, whatever it might be. Um, so whether there's distinction in the form of, you know, worshipping different gods in an Indian context, all of that can be explained under the, you know, the sort of uh, bigger umbrella of uh, everything is one. These are just different ways into the oneness. Um, and then when coming to the Western world, there is this idea that, yeah, even your religion, it's, it's possible mm. to see it in this mm. way. In fact, this is the universal blueprint for resolving conflict between world religions. Um, and so Vivekananda is a fascinating character in that way because he's speaking the same language as the theosophists in the Western context who are trying to find you know, the perennial philosophy, the secret <laughs> behind everything that the, everybody can tap into and you know, find the sort of master key to, to global mysticism. Um, and that's, I think, you know, this, this sort of combustible influence that really, really yeah, ignites a lot of what happens from that point onwards in the West. But the thing that Vivekananda wasn't promoting is physical yoga practice. He was, in fact, very rude about mm. it. He said it was a waste of time. <laughs> didn't get you anywhere. <laughs> he did teach a little bit of it because his Western students started asking about practices. But that wasn't his field of innovation. His was more about ideas. When it comes to physical practices, I mean, we can't really get away from the influence of Krishnamacharya and, uh, you know, his his best-known students, particularly Iyengar and Patabi Joyce, mm -hmm. just because they systematize two things that are now the building blocks of modern classes, the focus on where to put bits of your body mm -hmm. in great detail and with lots of precision, the whole concept of alignment cues coming out of Iyengar's version of things, yeah. and the idea of dynamic sequencing flow, mm -hmm. I mean, which is the main system of yoga taught in you know, gyms, yoga studios all over the world, that comes out of the Ashtanga approach. Um, both of which traceable back to, to, to Krishnamacharya. Of course, there are other aspects to Krishnamacharya's teaching um, through others of his students, not least his son, Desikachar, um, which don't get quite the same attention, but you know, are also equally innovative. Mm. The idea of yoga therapy really systematized in a, uh, you know, a much more um, holistic way through that tradition, yeah. although obviously it was pioneered by others in India and their, their influence didn't quite spread abroad in the same way. Yeah, exactly. um, so there's, there's that strand. 
But then there are others. I mean, we could make a case for the influence of, uh, you know, he's not a popular character for good reason, because he's, yeah, <laughs> he's a criminal, basically. Um, but uh, Bikram <laughs> uh, comes out of another lineage of really innovative um, yeah. physical practice in Calcutta. In the, and, know, and bodybuilding, century. you know. And and, his, uh, yeah, yeah, and the fusion yeah. there between yeah. bodybuilding and, and yoga practice was something that was, you know, these days, everybody's got this sort of, uh, I guess, in response to Mark Singleton's book, Yoga Body, um, an aversion quite often to hearing about this connection between uh, yogic practice and non-yogic systems of exercise. But this was totally uncontroversial in early 20th century India. Mm. Many mm. yoga teachers were, you know, very enthusiastically mixing and matching from these different traditions, understanding that, you know, physical training was good to strengthen the body, but yogic, you know, pursuits were about something subtler than that, but they could still work with the body towards the subtlety. Um, and yeah, the popularization of sun salutations mm. is really a fusion of yoga and bodybuilding. Krishnamacharya, um, who, you know, although he likes to sort of say everything he did was traditional, was uh, openly accused by Kuvalayananda, who's one of his rivals, I suppose, in mm. 1930s India, of mixing um, yoga mm. with non-yogic systems of exercise when he went to give a you know, demonstration mm. of fancy asana and uh, was told, in fact, you know, don't, don't teach this stuff to adults. That's really only for teenagers. Um, and, you know, and obviously these guys were just you know, a little, little bit slagging each other off. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there, there was a widespread acceptance of that. Kuvalayananda did the same thing. He, you know, was, he was originally a martial artist. And, yeah. You know, although he then promoted yoga, science, medicalization, healing through the body, um, you know, he was mixing and matching himself. So this enormous creativity, I think, and uh, blurring of the boundaries and this is the point that yoga body makes that everybody overlooks um, is that there isn't you know, something mutually exclusive about physical exercise and spiritual attainment mm. and in fact in early 20th century the two were seen as you know, entirely compatible um, it's just that obviously the aim is to see beyond detachment to the body and in a modern context often you know all that sort of physical um, hard work gets people much more invested in how they look you know posing mm. and whatnot mm. But uh, the idea there was that the two could be, you know, mutually, mutually sort of uh, beneficial, complementary. Well, that's a pretty uh, reasonable whistle-stop tour through a, a number of uh, aspects and characters of the uh, 20th century uh, modern yoga scene. What about, um, you, you missed out, um, Sri Yagendra there. And I think he's, a, unfortunately, he's a, yeah. well, I say unfortunately, but he seems to be a figure that, that, that still lurks in the shadows, really, right? I mean, he's not much talked about, and yet he had a huge influence. I mean, he really was the first modern yoga teacher, wasn't he? You mentioned the class mm -hmm. given on Christmas Day in Mumbai. Um, and well, he's exactly, the first yeah, person no, he, to open general classes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had a very, you know, traditional guru. He and Kuvalayananda, another you know, pioneering figure, um, they had the same teacher. Uh, and this guy, you know, traditional ashram context, was using various aspects of physical yoga as uh, you know, medical treatments, effectively, to heal people's ailments. And both of the, the, the other two, Kuvalayananda and Yogendra, wished to sort of carry that on in the world with, with ordinary people rather than in an ashram context. And Yogendra was basically being groomed by his teacher to take over. And he, you know, he renounced renouncing effectively and said, I dedicate myself to, to life in the world. So he, you know, he was consciously not wanting to be a guru, um, speaking openly about you know, the, the, the challenges of earning a living really as a yoga mm -hmm. teacher. And he had a patron initially, but eventually you know, was trying to charge uh, a fair price for people to come and get yoga teachings. Um, pioneering therefore a drop-in class model mm -hmm. effectively and um, but even the format of, of modern yoga classes you know starting by sitting in a relaxed position and then ending lying down in shavasana um, we don't know of anybody else before him who was putting that together as a framework and uh, he was very interested in the, the, you know, the sort of relaxation dimension of yoga he got a lot of those ideas actually though from a western source from uh, uh, genevieve stebbins mm -hmm. uh, 19th century uh, new york um, I guess dancer performer to a certain extent but really um synthesizing ideas that were which she called um, harmonic gymnastics uh, and uh, you know combining that with a focus on breath work so all these other systems of integrating mind body and spirit that existed in yeah. the west independently of of india start to get combined with yoga and uh, yogendra was he went to the us like vivekananda um in i think 1920 or so um he taught for a little while um wasn't in the end all that impressed with the US, but he learned a lot there, probably picked up some of those ideas, came back to India, you know, really sort of clear in his mission to uh, you know, 
bring yoga to the masses. Mm. And in the end, he felt a bit upstaged by his, I guess, uh, Guru Bai, his, his uh, fellow fellow well, devotee. He did have a bit of paranoia teacher, there, didn't uh, he? Yeah, yeah. But there was, well, I, he did to a certain extent. Unjustified, though. As he spins it. Yeah, yeah. As he spins it, he was supposed to. He was supposed to get the ashram space that yeah, Kuva yeah. got in in Lonavala. Whether that's true or not, we have no idea. But he had a bitterness. Yes, that, he did. Sort of yeah, but he was quite Yogendra. bitter anyway. He does seem yeah. like a worldly guy. Yeah. <laughs> As you say, yeah, he's he's, he's bitter, and yeah. also you know yeah. at the same time he's human. Yeah, <laughs> um, you couldn't mistake him for a guru mm, on a pedestal. Mm, mm, and I think that's quite a refreshing. Thing it is, well. and you know, he was incredible in what he has done for modern yoga, or you know depending on your viewpoint i mean because also you mentioned um, the breathing right that what we call yoga breathing now was really i think his innovation right there was previous to that we obviously have a posture taken in a generally a rigid form like a static asana and then a more of a, a pranayama applied to to the whilst in the static asana but yogendra starts to move his asanas around he develops a dynamic asana as i understand and he puts a certain breath with it but i don't think that people were doing that pre-yogendra as i, I think right well, I, th- I, I think this is the key to modern yoga in a way that, that, that is you know, the, the, the connecting thread back to traditional practice. And all the main innovative teachers wind up doing something similar. I mean, this is, this is how you get the idea that vinyasa means the synchronization of breath and movement uh, with Krishnamacharya's teaching. Um, it's a way to maintain you know, the, the two primary forms. The Mahabharata defines yoga as meditation and says there are two ways of going about it. One, you just focus your mind one pointedly, and the other is pranayama, because um, it just dissolves your mind eventually if you do enough of it. Um, and the idea was we could have a little bit of the one pointed focus mm-hmm. and a little bit of the you know <laughs> breath manipulation mm-hmm. as part of asana mm-hmm. practice. And that is a hundred percent new, totally. Who invented it first? I really don't know. I don't know that anybody could actually pinpoint that. But it very quickly becomes the way of making what is effectively a, a dynamic calisthenics kind of practice something more than dynamic calisthenics because it involves concentration and it involves you know the 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 the, the, the manipulation of vital energy mm. um, and then bundas are brought in and you know even gazing points etc etc but uh, all of that is is connecting something that is apparently quite new and quite, apparently even quite gymnastic with something that's much older you know many of the shapes are quite old doesn't you know all of them are new inventions but a large number of them are relatively new and certainly the the, the sequences into which they were combined are new um, and yet at the same time some of the oldest connections uh, ever talked about in indian texts uh, are there the mind and the breath connection discussed in the chandogya upanishads mm-hmm. so there's a real sort mm-hmm. of attempt i think to ground innovation in tradition and then in most cases to pretend no innovation has <laughs> taken place and coming well, back to your point about yogendra i think that's another refreshing yeah. thing about him he was quite open about it he was like i'm going to do a new thing yes <laughs> yeah, i want to yeah, marry yeah. science and spirituality yeah. and life in the world and you know all these yes he was quite western in lots of ways wasn't he whereas someone like krishna machara obviously believed innovation was what didn't happen because his guru was within him so it was no innovation because it was simply just uh you know kind of like spewing out what was kind of coming from classical precedent you know from from the guru within you know which is a good way to get around innovation right um, um <laughs> well i guess he went even further you know he claimed to be channeling dreams channeling, in yes, which he was spoken to by an ancestor from a thousand yes, years ago yes. and you know faithfully representing a long lost text that had all the sequences written down in it but unfortunately couldn't be produced the thing is, I mean, it might seem, and I know that um, many um, more um, traditional um, Indian commentators and even people listening to this um, in India, and uh, and I probably get a lot of slack for it, and they'll say, why, why are you picking apart in a, in a modern sense yoga? Right, it's a classical tradition, right? And mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and what's the reason for this critical theory applied to yoga? Right, what help does it make? What you know? So, would you answer a defence of that? Gladly, Adam. Yeah, mm. I think um, you know. There's, there's again a bit of a misnomer. It's a bit like the idea that somehow exercise and spiritual attainment, are, you know, pulling in opposite directions rather than something that you know, can be harnessed together. Mm. Um, critical thinking is compatible with yoga. It's not the enemy of yoga. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, given a lot of the, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, accretion of power by people who claim to have all the answers, uh, while at the same time often telling tall stories, uh, you know, it's something that is, is thankfully being eroded a little bit these days. Um, doesn't mean we need to do away with the idea that yoga is uh, 
something that comes from ancient Indian tradition, first of all. We also don't need to do away with the idea that the, 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 the highest aspirations of yoga um, are, are worth, worth striving for. And sometimes in the scholarly world, that just isn't discussed. So all the an analysis mm, can sound mm, quite dry, mm, as if there's no point to going yeah, about it. Yeah. But most of the people producing it are also practitioners and <laughs> do have yeah. an investment in it, even if they don't talk about mm. it. Um, and then the third thing, really, I think, is that uh, it helps us to understand better what we're doing. It's not to say that, you know, you're going to get the best guidance on how to practice yoga from reading academic analysis. Um, but a little bit of critical thinking can help us become a little bit clearer about what's the most important stuff to prioritize. Mm -hmm. And also, especially in this age where people are concerned about cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. decolonization and attempts to preserve some connection to tradition it's a lot more helpful to know what actually is traditional rather than what's in, you know being invented and then you know, disguised as tradition because mm. um, mm. then we actually get a bit clearer about how we're paying a part in this process mm. we're all innovating whether we like it or not because we're alive and you know possessed of a certain amount of free will even if it doesn't enable us to control very much um, so you know we're making choices mm. and uh, the choices we make will shape what yoga becomes so the clearer we are about the connecting threads that do run through all of that change that keep some continuity alive, the easier it will be for us to carry on the process, mm. hand on the baton to the next generation mm. with at mm. least some of the, uh, you know, the traditional elements preserved rather than just telling ourselves, oh, it's all the same thing and we've done a good job. Mm. Um, and this is why I you know, like to get sort of into some of the specifics that people are saying about yoga. So often these days you'll hear yoga means union. Mm. Yeah. It comes from Patanjali. And it's all about chakras and kundalini. Uh, and, you know, those three things, all from different places, have only relatively recently been combined um, and tend to mislead us. They mm -hmm. take us into this idea that there's only one yoga tradition. Um, there is in our own body and you know, sort of engagement with practice the one thing that we're doing. Um, but the combination of ingredients that make that up is you know, an enormously shape-shifting thing just in our own practice experience yeah. so imagine how it's been over <laughs> hundreds of years thousands of years of lots of different people doing the same thing all sorts of mixing and matching going on and the clearer we are about the fact that that's even happened the better positioned we'll be to to think you know sensibly about what we're prioritizing and why and that really leads me into the idea that yoga philosophy is a you know it's it's, it's a living thing um conversations like the ones you have are important they they seed the idea that you know we're developing our own philosophy of yoga. Mm. It doesn't mean that the other texts that have been written before are irrelevant. It's just that they don't have all the answers to life in the 21st century when conditions and priorities are different. Mm -hmm. So we're choosing what to prioritize. And it's more helpful to admit that that's what we're doing mm -hmm. than pretending that Patanjali says all the stuff that we want to do. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I guess that's, that's why I think the scholarly analysis helps to free us up yeah. from the idea yeah. that it's wrong to, to, yeah. to reinvent things. Because the problem with that is we end up reinventing them and then pretending all the old texts say the reinvented things. Yeah. I mean, so many great points there, Daniel, and um, and it is a really a subject that really intrigues me. Can we? I mean, can can we decide anything that's efficient, you know, and useful in terms of our happiness? Now, can we just call that yoga? For example, I mean, like, what about yoga therapy? Right? You know, does yoga inherently have to be something to do with a transcendental aspiration for meaning outside life, or can we simply, as many people do now, and you know, fair enough use it for heal physical healing, you know, well, right, use it for physical healing, use it for mental and emotional healing, use it for a little bit of respite in life, right? And can we call that yoga? Can we sit with a goat on our back and say, you know, the obvious one, and, you know, and, and say, well, that's, you know, that's our intention to what makes us feel good in life. And yoga is about feeling good in life. And that that is our modern version of yoga, right? Or is there some line in the sand where we well, have to say there has to be a precedent somewhere along the line, you know, to, in terms of our intention to what we're doing, and that has to be the same as what it was there? I think you sum it up very well in that last statement, Adam. I, th I, I you know, I, th I think we have to, I guess, um, have some connection to other things that have been called yoga mm. in the past mm. to really be able to defend the choice to call what we do now yoga. Yeah. If there's no connection of any kind whatsoever, why are we using this word? Yeah. Especially if we've actually consciously yeah. chosen to reject all of those things. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's probably just yoga for branding. And, you know, some of the things you see now, rage yoga, drunk rage yoga. Rage yoga, that's great. That's a question. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. get together, sort of, sometimes get, get really drunk, start swearing and shouting, <laughs> get, you know, vent your anger. Um, it's probably quite helpful to vent your anger. And I suppose you could then make a 
an argument for that might diminish suffering in some mm, way. That's that's some kind of connection to yoga. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, mean, yeah. I guess the thing I really want to say is I'm not the yoga police. I'm not going to go around and tell anybody else where that line is. But I think it's something we need to think about for ourselves. If we want to use the word yoga, we should, I think, have a, a simple answer for ourselves. Uh, yeah, what is yoga? And also yeah. then, by extension, what isn't? And I know, think, I just uh, break what, in, what is it about what yeah. we're doing that is yoga? Just mm. Break in there and say one thing. I think I, when I've done this and I, people have challenged it and say, well, that's really useful. And you're saying that that's not yoga. And it's like, well, no, the two things are different. Yoga therapy, for example, right? Using asana as a therapeutic tool for healing the body, for example, right? That, that's that's weird. Um, it doesn't invalidate that, that and the importance of that modality by saying maybe that's not yoga. It's like, well, you know, I, so, I mean, I think it's, you know, that's a kind of important point to make is that these things that we're bringing in now and we're using kind of certain principles for that they're not invalid just because they don't happen to have the same precedent as classical yoga. Well, I hear you. Now, it's an interesting distinction to make. Uh, and I guess, though, the question really is how we define healing. Um, and uh, mm. in traditional contexts in yoga, it's, you know, it's, it's liberation from the cycle mm. of birth, mm. really. But uh, the underlying sort of uh, sentiment behind that is freedom from cycles of suffering mm. uh, and conditioned experience that causes suffering. So in the end, it's basically freedom from the idea of being a person was the fundamental <laughs> aim for, for original yogis. Mm. Um, and that, that function is still you know, very relevant um, in this enormously self-centered world that we inhabit these days. Even just loosening the attachment to the idea of ourselves just a little bit is, you know, is great great source of empowerment um so i think i think if, if if all connection to the idea that you know at some level the problem is me mm. has been lost mm. then it's gone a bit far away from, from yoga tradition if it's just about trying to get more comfortable in our little safe space um yeah it just just means you know blissing out in our personal bubble and, uh, and not really understanding the interconnection of things and and also the the, the fact that uh, getting out of our comfort zone is part of what what that uh, process of, mm. of changing our perspective on reality was all about um and yet at the same time you know re- relief of suffering if we're not going all the way to sort of completely detach from being a person and <laughs> detach from reality as we know it and perhaps even from you know li- living in the world then um you know we've lowered the bar a little bit mm. and, and perhaps that also then can quite legitimately encompass um getting more comfortable in a body that's afflicted by pain mm. due to you know whatever um could, chronic disease for example mm. um being able to be better better capable of facing death is again a very traditional uh element of yoga philosophy that's really what patanjali mm. i guess is talking about <laughs> as mm. he said you know get ready to die and maybe even go all the way but um you know obviously people have to face death we can't avoid mm. it it's coming for all of us and, and, and if yoga makes people more comfortably embodied as they have to you know deal with the the slow decay of the body then perhaps that is traditional. Mm. It's, it's very hard to say. Mm. I think every criterion gets pretty slippery. I've even mm. managed to rationalise rage yoga briefly in a, you know, when we were passing over it. So, um, I, I, you know, as I say, I think it's an open question that we you know, can keep exploring. Because if there's one thing that yoga has consistently been, it's an inquiry. Mm. Um, even if that inquiry involves shutting down all of you know, the sense doors and just looking inwards. Um, and uh, you know, really not going in with preconceptions, actually trying to remove all mental content to see what's behind. And so just even inquiring into the question of what is yoga and accepting that we don't have a fixed answer, that maybe there isn't a fixed answer, is already, I guess, in keeping with the spirit of that, that tradition. I think. Mm. Um, and really also just, just being open to the fact that everything is changing. That is the reality of <laughs> life in the world. Um, and so, you know, all of these answers we might have about what's yoga is, is bound, you know, they're bound to be in flux. The yoga tradition, though, does suggest that there is something that's unchanging, this sort of true self or you know, pure consciousness that stands outside of that. You know, Kata Upanishad says, find that which doesn't change amidst all the other things that do. Um, but maybe the thing that's unchanging in some ways is the function of yoga. The form of yoga is constantly changing, but the underlying function we can perhaps find some continuity with, even if it just keeps shape-shifting from relief from the cycle of births to you know, being a little bit more comfortable in a pain-afflicted body. Um, perhaps there is a thread of continuity there in that function of, of alleviating suffering. Um, but I think the question we really have to keep coming back to is, um, 
we shouldn't be just trying to alleviate our own suffering to get more comfortable being me in my little container. It's much more about dissolving that, which inevitably leads us more in the way of, you know, the Mahayana Buddhist bodhisattva of trying to remove suffering in general, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is where mm -hmm. people can latch on to all sorts of political ideas as well, which I don't think are necessarily yoga in themselves. But I do think it could be yoga to talk about politics. The last session of this online course, The Roots mm -hmm. of Modern Yoga, looks at how yoga and politics have been combined I mean, Gandhi made a whole political philosophy out of uh, Patanjali's first two mm. yamas, plus a few other ideas. Um, so there is uh, there is this idea that yoga is actually compatible with almost anything, but I don't think yoga is in and of itself everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it is about our relationship with everything, so you could say it is. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I think you know we can define or redefine the use of what what uh, the alleviation of suffering means, right? You know, or what you know, right? But mm seems to me still we have to have certain kind of criterion around that and I, I probably would suggest a higher aspiration than simply yeah as you say comfort in one's own small bubble in the world um to call it to call it yoga um do we have any precedent for what we're currently doing is there you know is there any precedent in in scriptures to the to the current to, to that gives some kind of um context and lead to the current yoga that we're mm. you say you mentioned flow yoga or Right, uh, different iterations we see in the current yoga class situation. Where, where does this come from? Well, I mean, all of that really is 20th century invention. It's a derivation from Krishnamacharya and uh, you know, his, uh, his, his idea of dynamic sequenced asana, which was probably for demonstration purposes initially, um, and also perhaps for training young, young men that he was you know, tasked to, to whip into shape. Um, but I think, you know, it does come perhaps from a broader tradition. You know, he was obviously drawing ideas from somewhere, Krishnamacharya. And uh, you know, I think the influence of uh, wrestling training, um, other perhaps Indian martial arts, perhaps even traditions of dance um, on the development of dynamic sequenced asana is just something that's understudied that we know very little mm. about. Um, so there are precedents there. There's one text that's now the focus of a lot of scholarly interest. Um, that you know, is, is perhaps the first evidence of sequence postures from the 18th century. Uh, the Hattabhyasa uh, Padati um, was probably uh, studied in a slightly adapted form by Krishnamacharya and may have given him the sanction to, to come up with his own inventions. Um, but there really isn't a precedent for, for you know, sequenced asana being the practice until the 20th century. There isn't even really a precedent for what you're talking about, you know, the idea of health and well-being mm. as, as the objective of yoga until the 20th century. But some of those teachers we've been talking about, I mean, all of them to a certain extent, Krishnamacharya, Yogendra, Kuvalayananda, um, talked about yoga being for that purpose they also held out the prospect of something higher than that so in a way it's almost a hierarchy of needs mm. go back to okay. abraham maslow and his pyramid <laughs> so you could have sort of entry level yoga mm. just being more comfortably embodied mm. and, you know sort of top of the pyramid you know, going up in a blaze of light out the top of the head like the old yogis um but at the same time you know it doesn't necessarily have to mean that any of it's any less yoga just because there's a hierarchy even it's more just uh, aligned with yoga and all of these things i think are on a spectrum and part of yoga philosophy in fact often is 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 seeing the the, the polarity and realizing that the two extremes aren't really where anybody is <laughs> in fact we're all somewhere on that spectrum mm. and again it's a, a moving thing so to take a really simple example you know potentially says practice is a balance of you know basically making an effort to concentrate and, and letting go and becoming totally absorbed so how can you both you know pull in one way and the other way mm. at the same time well you do you find this dynamic balance of those two things um he was talking about you know pure seated meditation but you can do that in physical asana practice is 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 then doing that inauthentic because it's now adapted to a different context or is it just again thinking about the usefulness of ideas um, and the the broader question i think of why is the one that really needs the most consideration that what we're doing is less important i think um, it's why we're doing mm -hmm. it and to a certain extent how we're doing it that yoga philosophy is really addressing and uh, we can i think find continuities but you know it's always on the spectrum perhaps not going as far as one could take it one could perhaps push things a little bit further and you know and also why not? It'd be great. It'd be great to think there's always further to go with these practices at the same time as, you know, realizing perhaps we don't need to go anywhere at all. Mm. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we can actually find some element of yoga right here, right now without doing anything. Um, and yet still there's, 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 there's a point to the practice. Um, 
So it's this weird combination of aiming for something while at the same time there being nothing worth aiming for other than <laughs> being right here, right now. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tricky one. Yoga is full of paradox, would be my answer. What about, what about the uh, Hatha Yoga uh, Pradipika as a, as a text that seems to convey some use of asana for the sake of health, or at least uh, uh, keeping the body healthy for, for meditation? So is there, would you say there's some roots there that might... That's a very good point, mm. Adam. Yeah, I mean, that's the text that first really identifies non-seated postures mm. as something mm. yeah, that we might do for physical benefits. For example, Mayurasana, mm. peacock posture, yeah, arm balance, challenging one, can't hold it for very long, was the first non-seated posture to be taught in a yoga text around a thousand years ago. Exactly. And it was introduced as one of the lowest. <laughs> so it didn't seem to have any benefits at all to the guys who wrote those texts. But uh, it then very quickly, by the time of the Hatha Pradipika, a few hundred years later, is said to cure all diseases, yeah, have yeah, all yeah, of these yeah, wonderful yeah. benefits to your digestion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, obviously it did. Um, but I think it tells us something about the function of asana at the same time as well. All of these positions are in some way cleansing things out. Out to be capable of sitting and doing the next stage of practice, which is pranayama. There's no suggestion that once you've, uh, as it puts it towards the end of the first chapter of the Hatha Pradipika, become firm and you know, steady in your practice of asana and bandha, um, there's no need to do any training any longer. You're then capable of doing the main practice, which is pranayama and mudra. Um, and then to a certain extent, there are some meditations in the fourth chapter. But the repetition of mudra seems to be the practice that the yogi's aiming for. And that is a bit like asana. It's making a physical shape, but holding it for a very long time with holding the breath mm. involved, with the locks engaged, yeah. moving energies around. And it's said you're supposed to practice these mudras um, eight times a day, so every three hours. So quite when you eat or sleep without you know, engaging the locks and... Mm holding everything up there i don't really know uh, but uh i think i think the role of asana is therefore entirely as a warm-up as you, as you suggest uh, and that's the distinction in modern yoga it's become uh, an end in itself mm. and mm. the mechanism through which everything else can be explored as Iyengar put it mm. uh, and that is there just is no precedent mm. for that that is the definition of modern yoga that's what uh mark singleton and uh his his phd supervisor elizabeth de michaelis were in their different ways discussing that's the essence of modern and postural yoga, um, making postures the entirety of the practice yeah. in a way, or yeah. the suggestion that through that you can get a long way with yoga. And in some ways you can. I mean, concentration really is the essence of, 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 of yoga as a practice. Mm. Um, and mm. you can concentrate on anything. Yeah. Patanjali points that out, 39th Sutra of the first, uh, you know, the, the, the Samadhi Pada. Um, he says, you know, that's, that's really up to you to find what you fix your mind on. So why not fix your mind on making shapes? But the Hatha Pradipika says nothing of that. It just says, you know, do these things for a while, cleanse yourself out, and then move on to pranayama. And if you're still not quite cleansed out, do the shut karmas is another way of, you know, getting rid of all the goo and gunk that clogs up your nadis. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, you touched on a good point that concentration really is the hut, the kind of nub of it or that, the, the, you know, the kind of turning centre, isn't it? That, but, but again, that being so ambiguous could then really be interpreted in any way you want and then anything could once again be yoga, really, if you're concentrating on it or it begs the question... Very good point. It yeah, begs yeah. the question then about intention, right? If your concentration is intent, intent on truth or your concentration is intent on something else but but then even then i mean we see that you mentioned briefly i think on, on you know it uses of yoga in medieval times as a kind of sorcery as a kind of uh, concentration in order to kind of get magic powers right and then is that yoga right and it kind of brings me on to the kind of question i'd like to ask you is where does this we see a discrepancy between now where yoga is purely a for, for, for being a better person in the world, for being my best self, right? You know, but previous to that, we've got a lot of yoga, which is a little bit more insidious and darker to do with developing personal power, generally over others, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how does maybe um, the role of politics or Hindu nationalism tie into this at all does the, the you know the politicization i mean i know it's a bit of a complicated question yeah. but it seems to, it seems to, <laughs> hot potato yeah, yeah. time it yeah. seems to tie into this uh, this revamping of yoga from something which was sometimes somewhat more of a sorcery kind of practice 
to a, to a different kind of... Well, there, there are elements of that, yeah, in the yoga tradition. I mean, the, the pursuit of powers has been, um, I guess, airbrushed out of yoga history a lot of the time in the modern world. I mean, how many yoga teacher trainings read the third uh, part of the, the Yoga Sutra, which is all about powers. You know, there's more sutras yeah. on magic see, powers yeah. than anything else. You see this, and you see this, you see the Nath, yeah. the Nath Sadhus practicing yoga in, in, in a way or, or acting in such a manner that doesn't suggest ahimsa particularly. Well, there's certainly, yeah, yeah. certainly not yeah. any of, uh, of this prioritization of what we like to think mm, of as yoga exactly. often right. in the yoga tradition. Mm. Um, there's, uh, you know, I, I was teaching a training last week uh, talking about, you know, asceticism and doing, you know, really tough body mortification effectively, holding your arm up until it turns into a redundant piece of wood. Um, and some guy put up his hand and said, this seems to me an early example of toxic masculinity. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, could, I could see where he was coming from. But uh, uh, I, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think in a way that there is that sort of bifurcation, you know, the, the two possibilities in yoga between trying to just... Uh, get liberated from the world effectively or to be more empowered to be in the world and both of those things have been associated with yoga but I think traditionally if we really go back to it and look at what practices are you know I guess allied with the cultivation of powers um, there's a lot more tapas a lot more asceticism Mm, going mm, on mm. amongst those early practitioners Mm. and then with the injection of tantra um, you get sort of almost uh, (laughs) the um, acceleration of that process and then mm. the possibility of combining powers and liberation. So there's a lot more interest in that. The tantric traditions are what influence physical practice. So that's where you, you really get uh, the combination of the two. But none of the Hatha yoga texts really talk about that. They do say some of them that you can become liberated in this body and become like a god and walk around the world doing whatever you like, including sleeping with whoever you feel yeah. like and summoning down, you know, all these divine kind of um, beings to consort with you while you live forever um but uh, for the most part uh, they, they they really are talking still about liberation and i think there's a, a slightly purer um yoga <laughs> focus on you know turning away from the world and that's not to say that you know text like patanjali's is uh, is not giving a lot of space to powers because it is but in the end patanjali does say your yeah, powers are one thing and you can also get them through concentration he lists uh, five options yeah, drugs <laughs> chanting mantras being lucky um <laughs> Or uh, I forgot which ones I've said. Oh, the practice of, uh, of austerities as well as the, the the meditation that he teaches. All of those will work. But in the end, he says you've got to let go even of the omnipotence and omniscience of being a god if you want to get liberated. So there was always that idea before Tantra came along and said powers and liberation can be the same thing, uh, which did turbocharge some of these traditions like the Nuts. Um, but uh, you know, in the end, I think um, you know. We are, I think, encouraged by uh, early yoga texts to not be self-centered. If there's one consistent message, it's, it, it's to see beyond the illusion of me. Mm-hmm. Um, however that's framed or phrased, uh, whether it's just to go beyond the mind where the whole idea of me originates or, or whether it's explicitly to deal with the problem of desire, as a lot of yoga texts talk about. This attachment to self-satisfaction is the problem. That's what causes misery and keeps us engaged in action. Um, so the attempts these days to make yoga about living my best mm. life are perhaps less connected to tradition than, than sometimes is suggested. I'm not sure that yoga necessarily a, makes you a better mm. person unless you choose to, to be a better mm. person. might make you very good at concentrating, becoming absorbed in all sorts of otherworldly states. But then when you come back in the world, you might behave like a, you know, um, in, in, insert, uh, insert swear word of choice. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I think the the basic message is is to try and de- decrease your self centeredness and therefore your tendency towards bad behaviour. Yes, um, yeah, and yeah. so some would argue that anybody who comes back from their ability to meditate very deeply and hasn't transformed themselves hasn't really gone as far as the tradition is encouraging you to go. So although there is the possibility of gaining power, it's never really meant to be power over others. It's really power over the idea of yourself to eliminate it. That's the real power. That's the ultimate power is to just be content with everything the way it is and not need the world to revolve around us mm. to provide us all the things that we think we need to be happy. So potentially says actually that uh, well, in the commentary accompanying the, the sutra on uh, the benefits of contentment, uh, the uh, niyama of Santosha says it's basically equivalent to 16 times the best attainments from all the love in the world, so better than the best sex, um, and also 16 times better than being in heaven with all the gods. Um, 
So that's really, that, in some ways, that's the ultimate power, uh, just to be okay with everything as it is. Mm. The same thing as the Buddha talked about. So building up back to the question of politics, I mean, I think inherently, um, trying to have power over other people has got very little to do with yoga. Uh, and the use of yoga by politicians in modern India is therefore something that we, I think, would uh, benefit from having a, a little bit of a sceptical look at. Um, Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, now you're in trouble. Yeah, went to the United <laughs> Nations in in 2014, <laughs> I, just, I mean, this is all part of my course. Okay, oh, okay, oh, right, right. Um, yeah. And he asked the United Nations to endorse this International Day of Yoga um, to be held on June 21st, you know, the summer solstice every year. Um, June 21st also happens to be the death anniversary of the, the founder of the RSS, um, Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, uh, the yeah, sort of um, voluntary uh, nationalist movement, which uh, Modi joined as a young man and yeah, was also modelled on some of the weirder movements of European fascism. Um, <laughs> And uh, that has been part of yep. the, the current project, mm. in a way, is, is to, to reposition Modi, to sort of distance him from those, those things that are being said about him. He was banned from traveling to the US. He tried to get a visa in 2005 and was told he couldn't go there. Mm. And then within 10 years, he's in front of the UN mm. General Assembly in New York, mm. making a speech saying, you know, let's have World Yoga Day. So it was a, a masterstroke of diplomatic soft power mm. to... You know, align himself with all of this and at the same time you know that's probably quite sincere to a certain extent i mean he has a, 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 an association with yoga that seems to be part of his daily lifestyle so i'm not trying to suggest he's cynically manipulated yoga entirely but there's definitely some opportunism at work in in in, in that push for international yoga day mm. um, and uh, i think also then the way in which it helps to reinforce certain narratives that help yeah. Hindu nationalism, particularly about you know everything being really old and all coming from the ancient Indus Valley and perhaps even you know way back when before we've even imagined history going mm. to. Um, so all of that helps with the idea that India is the repository of all sacred knowledge, mm. one. Number two, um, that it's uh, a country that is synonymous with Hindus, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, the essence of Hindu nationalism, this idea of yeah, Hindutva, yeah. the nation is you know, indistinguishable from the Hindus as a race rather than as a religion. Um, and that, you know, is aligned with some of the hardline politicians who are you know, really basically inciting violence against minorities, particularly Muslims. And then obviously this has all got another side to it because there have been terrorist attacks in India. There have been wars with the neighbour Pakistan since partition. Mm. Um, there are problems that, you know, these nationalists feed off uh, in the same way that you know, the... Uh, uh, the leaders of the Western world who invaded Iraq without any justification whatsoever in 2003 fed off the existence of global Islamic terrorism and the attacks on New York mm -hmm. and Washington in 2001. Um, they didn't, I mean, we'll, we'll end up down a conspiracy rabbit hole if we don't watch out. But um, yeah, Boy, opportunism <laughs> is something that goes on everywhere, every, every, everywhere in <laughs> politics is what I'm really trying to say. Uh, and, you know, yoga is not immune from that. Yeah, I mean, the problem yeah, sometimes yeah. becomes that in the modern world, when we're encouraged to think about decolonizing yoga mm. um, yeah, centering voices from the place where yoga originated we might inadvertently therefore you know co-opt a few hindu nationalist narratives without realizing it and i think this obsession mm. with everything being old in order to be authentic makes that even more likely mm. particularly because that's one of the particular arguments exactly. that's being yeah. pushed yeah. from that worldview. Uh, so i think we just you know would do well to be aware of that um, and you know, some might say me as a white man talking mm. about yoga history is, is already you know, overstepping some boundaries. I guess it's what I've been said in the comments of uh, is try, many trying, videos I've done. <laughs> trying to be accurate. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's all that's yeah. all we can do. Yeah. Try to be accurate. And, and part of being accurate for me is to be honest about the history of Western colonialism. And the course looks at that in great detail, as well as also seeing some of the effects of that, which is the understandable rise of nationalism. That's how the British were kicked out of India in the first place. But that has now got a life of its own in modern mm. and you know, i think we need to be aware of the ways in which that you know, creeps into the yoga space especially as we're increasingly interested in centering voices from uh, the indian subcontinent when listening to ideas about you know yoga philosophy and the meaning of what we're doing well put daniel and um i'll probably kind of make five less comments that i'll have to answer than <laughs> on this video <laughs> Maybe a few. It's been days kind of getting back to these because it is a very contentious issue, which um, you know is you know understandably so. Um, and uh, you know, but you know, everything has uh, a political dimension because we're social beings, and uh, you know, potentially wasn't talking to social beings, but and that's the thing we've taken 
Patanjali's text, which was a monastic text, and we've used it. We use particularly the yamas and you know somewhat the niyamas for for everyday life and and as a as a way to translate our experience in society rather than out of society. And I think um, this is a, you know so yoga inevitably plays a part in this and, and yoga sprung. I mean you know Krishnamacharya was obviously tasked you know by the Maharaja Mysore to uh, you know to make something where you know which. Maharaja Mysore was very much involved in the nationalist discourse of making, you know, not, not in a necessarily negative way, but making, you know, India great and, and proud again and, and reasonably so, you know. And so mm-hmm. Krishnamacharya is making these strong young boys, you know, in, rooted in somewhat of a, an Indian discipline. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, not, not all at all for, for the negative, let's say. Um, you know, a lot of, Absolutely yeah. not. There would be modern. There would be no modern yoga practice in the way that we know that's it, were it not for those forces. Yes, that, that, yes. That's what you know really encouraged people to think mm, about mm. cultivating the body in an indigenous way. Mm, there was mm. this prevalence of global systems of exercise mm, through the colonial occupation yeah. of India. Some of those ideas were helpful, but in the end, you know what what really inspired these uh, these innovators was the idea that we have an indigenous tradition of uh, working with the body in India that is actually you know, aspiring to something more than yeah. just body cultivation and um, but we can use some of this body cultivation mentality to make it really relevant and really powerful yeah. to urban householders who can drop in get a little bit of it and make yeah. it part of their daily routine exactly. and so that's yeah. you know it's a really really important function all right finally daniel where do you see it? i mean it's a leading question is it but where do you see yoga you know innovating where do you see it innovating to the future you know look looking at current yoga and the way it's you know it's a billion dollar industry or whatever it is you know it's become it's become an industry and it's you know commercialized and uh, com- commoditized etc cetera, etc cetera. where you know where 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 would you like to see it going and what are the you know pitfalls that we might be aware of you know in terms of just going down a complete wow, dark alley yeah. with it you know blind alley with it well, I think I think the thing I would like to see, and I keep sort of hoping we're almost there, is that, that you know, it sounds sounds a bit sort of, uh, I guess, um, doom mongering, but uh, the bursting of the yoga bubble to a certain extent. Um, there's been this sort of upward trajectory, this this yoga boom with the you know, the, the, the engine of, of capitalist transformation of yoga into this commoditized product available on every street corner. Um, you know, really always being in turbo accelerate mode Um, and even with the pandemic shutting down yoga studios the technology that's allowing us to talk has also enabled yoga to be transmitted ever more quickly Mm -hmm. to ever more places Mm -hmm. all at once so so there's this engine of growth there Mm -hmm. Um, and you know it would be nice to see as well the sort of parallel realization that yoga is not really about all of those things yoga's a way in which we relate to ourselves first and foremost um, and perhaps to see beyond this idea of ourselves um, and then to you know, go back into the world perhaps um, as uh, <laughs> slightly less um, what can we say afflicted being mm. um, and that's that's what yoga is about and that's not often promoted in these these contexts the ideas might be paid lip service to practices are taught people get benefits from practices sometimes they lead in that direction mm. there's an encouragement from all the yoga texts if anybody opens them to go in that direction mm. but what's often amplified by the current model is mastery of techniques rather than you know why are we doing this <laughs> and what are those techniques actually supposed to achieve uh, you can get really good at concentrating and still, you know, choose to fire a weapon more effectively or, you know, trade all manner of complicated financial instruments and collapse the world economy. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of things you can do with a concentrated mind, not all of them necessarily noble. Mm. And so I think encouraging more you know, internalization would be a good thing. And that would happen if, <laughs> if there were fewer yoga businesses still in business. And, you know, unfortunately, that's been happening of late places closing down. So I'm not trying to say I want to see the yoga industry to collapse. Um, I, I work You'll be out of a job, yeah, exactly. It. It's nice. To, it's well, it's nice to go into spaces and talk to people. Yeah. But what I'm always struck by when I go into a modern yoga studio mm-hmm. is you know, how little space is created for what we're doing here, talking about yoga. Um, and uh, the you know, in India, if you were to say I'm giving a yoga workshop, often people would expect you were going to sit on the stage and give a discourse, yeah. um, rather than you know, te- te- teach them how to you know, move one part of their body slightly more skillfully for half an hour and then you know, sit down and watch the demonstration of how to do the next thing. Um, so I, th- I think this, this idea of talking about yoga is important because it then gives us a space to stop talking and turn away from the talking. Um, 
So I'd like to see a bit more of that coming in. And I don't think that's compatible with the capitalistic, you know, fill the room with as many people as possible mindset in most yoga studios. That's really what I'm talking mm. about. The, the impetus towards making money, which is essential if you're going to keep the studio open, mm-hmm. <laughs> is sort of leading away from the focus on what's most important. And instead, it's just you know, who's got the best soundtrack, who you know can be the most uh, sort of uh, inspiring mm. um Mr. Motivator at the front of the room <laughs> and you know, it's not necessarily got anything to do with yoga, although it can. You know, there are some teachers who do a wonderful job of managing to you know, push themselves through those hoops and still preserve some of what's yoga. But obviously, they're the minority and you know, the vast majority of what's out there with the word yoga attached to it isn't that well connected to yoga tradition. And uh, you know, if if there was a shift in that you know, kind of market dynamic, a lot of that would fall away. It would be the next thing that you know would uh, be re- so it'd be the thing that would be replaced by the next trend, much as yoga replaced aerobics, mm. and jogging mm-hmm. as, as something you know, that was trendy for a while in the eighties. So I don't know. It's uh, it's exciting in some ways to see what might happen, especially now. The access to quality information about yoga history and philosophy is, yeah. is un- unparalleled, mm. and you can you can read all the texts, you can listen to all the teachers, you can you know, tune into podcasts and hear them being interviewed. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a possibility for something new yeah. to come out of yeah. all of that. And I don't know what it looks like. The dark side, though, you're asking about. <laughs> You know, obviously, technology is getting more and more involved. The dark side for me, and it's this thought experiment that I think I once heard Mark Singleton talking about. Uh, you know, what if you could just push a button once we've you know, got closer to the singularity and there's a chip in the forehead and goodness knows what else? You just push a button on your device or think the right thought, and suddenly, boom, the mind is still concentration attained without any willpower behind it. Would that still be yoga? Mm. Um, that's obviously a fairly extreme thought experiment, but you know, somewhere between here and there, there'd be many ways in which the simulation of yogic attainment is ever more accessible to people uh, through technology. Um, and it will become you know, even more likely that the, <laughs> the real meaning of yoga gets sort of distorted or you know, falls away um, through the capacity to access what people think they're trying to get from yoga without actually having to <laughs> do any of the uh, disciplined, let's face it, even semi-sacrificial hard work. I mean, if nothing else, sacrificing attachments <laughs> to the need for everything to be a certain yeah, way in yeah, order yeah. to be content in yeah. life. Um, if any if any of that isn't required, you know what's that got to do with the yoga tradition? And I see the possibility of technology delivering all sorts of things. You've already got these weird necklaces that can give you vibrations and help you to meditate. Oh, and do some very interesting. Out of it. Oh, yeah. Right. So and yeah. then there's going to be headsets yeah. that I mean, can you know, monitor your thought waves and tell you how yoga to was get better attuned. Synonymous with tapas, really. So mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's yeah. doing something that's hard, and I think we've kind of lost the realization that that's important, right? Like I remember, you know, the kind of very early philosophy classes, I think, you know, when I was still studying it at secondary school when I say, well, if you could just take a pill that would make you happy, would you take it? That, that kind of thing, right? You know, so the far, <laughs> you know, which is kind of what you're saying in a way with a chip in the head. It's like, you know, is there anything that's, that, that, that is relevant about struggle and, and something to do with yoga is, as you say, it's it, in the right manner, safely challenging one's own limitations if we want to do anything kind of substantial is important and i think the danger for me is that on one hand i tread this very finely this fence between you know making people comfortable in the class which is fundamental and you know and and you know in current discourse this idea of yoga and the importance of yoga in trauma therapy and um, you know presenting a, a safe space for people in the class and the yoga teacher is not some kind of uh, you know crazy wisdom guru who's going to break people out of their uh, you know their, their their comfort zone you know but on the other hand that we can easily run the risk as well of running of wrapping people up in such cotton wool in the yoga class now that there's no possibility of, of mm. difficult of, of of coming into oneself in a in a difficult and challenging manner where you want one might then have a, some kind of a you know general kind of and progressive you know, transformation let's say it's a really interesting point to make adam and i think it's a really imp- important one to emphasize um that yeah there is uh, i've seen you talking about this quite a bit on social media the role of the teacher and uh, you yeah. know what, what one needs to bear in mind and, and it is it is really important that teachers reflect on that uh, and sometimes i wonder whether we as teachers really need to do much more than 
seed the idea that this is a concept for people to find their own relationship with. Uh, obviously, it's hard to see out of your own comfort zone. If it was easy, then we wouldn't need, wouldn't need any help. Uh, yeah. But perhaps it's not the teacher's job to do the prodding exactly. as much as to sow the seed of the fact yes. that we, we, you know, we need to challenge ourselves. We need to watch out for this desire to be comfortable all the time. Mm. And mm. that's where you know, people get into cold baths and <laughs> Wim Hof training and goodness knows what. And all that's got some actually, that is, that is tapas in action in the 21st century. Mm. Um, so we don't have to do it that way. Um, there are other ways of doing it, but actually willfully embracing um, something beyond the comfort zone can be transformative. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways we can choose to go about that. And it's up to us to find one that works for us without at the same time trying to you know, get too comfortable in our attempt to go beyond discomfort, mm -hmm. <laughs> because otherwise we'll just reinforce the, the same tendency. Yeah. But, you know, yoga um, potentially talks about tapas uh, as essential because it burns through impurity. And without trying to turn yoga into Christian doctrine on original sin and we're all stained, mm, mm, mm. Um, suffering is the product of what goes on between the ears. We build unhelpful patterns into our mind. A lot of them we inherited from other people, generations back, passed through the pre previous, yeah. previous generation to us, uh, built around us by society in ever more complex ways through mass media and electronic devices in our hands at all, all times. Um, somehow we have to unwind some of that. Some work has to be done. And this, this is a discipline of, of, of being willing to confront the fact that that exists and being able to burn through some of it somehow. That's what tapas is. It's heat. It's this you know, transformative power of the original sacrificial fire. And the idea is to offer up into it all of the unhelpful stuff that we carry around with us all the time. Mm. And, you know, we need to find a way of doing that or I don't think it's really yoga in the end. <laughs> so I've, I've gone there. I've said it. You know, if yoga hasn't <laughs> yeah. got some of that in it, it's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. not yoga. You finally, in my opinion, you finally you know, closed down in some definition. I'm just some guy. Yeah. You know, it's, well, it's up to you. Well, that's a good place to end it, Daniel. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a wonderful chat. And uh, please uh, look up uh, the course that Daniel was teaching. I'm kind of tempted myself to sign up. And if you haven't read the book, The Truth of Yoga, mm -hmm. it's a fantastic book. I'm putting my utter endorsement behind that um you'll find daniel's website in the comments and uh in the uh you know, everywhere where to where to reach him and what he's doing so uh thanks again daniel for for your time today it's been wonderful oh, thank you thank you thank you very much adam no, i really appreciate it It'd be lovely to have you on the course um and really just to sort of emphasize part of the course is almost you get another book I, i've really sort of written the sequel to the truth okay. of yoga is the course notes okay so, <laughs> right, yeah. right right bonus right, bonus right, 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 right. <laughs> okay well thanks okay. again take care